But if someone else tells you, well, you just have to forgive or you'll never find peace, you can ignore them. I'm sorry. Two simple words, but often the most difficult ones to say. What makes an apology and forgiveness so difficult? My guest, Dr. Harriet Lerner, will help us to better understand the art of apology. Dr. Lerner is one of the most respected voices in the psychology of women and the how-tos of navigating the swamps and quicksands of difficult relationships. She is the author of 12 books published in 35 languages. These include New York Times bestseller, The Dance of Anger, and her new book, Why Won't You Apologize? Healing Big Betrayals and Everyday Hurts. Welcome to The Spark. I'm your host, Stephanie James. I am joined today by Harriet Lerner. And Harriet, I am just so honored and thankful to have you here on The Spark. Welcome to the show. I am delighted to be here. Today we're going to be talking about uh, your latest book, Why Won't You Apologize? And tell me the subtitle of that book. Healing Big Betrayals and Everyday Hurts. What an important book and what an important book for our time. Tell me what inspired you to write this book. We are all connected. We all grew up. We all unwittingly hurt other people, just as we're hurt by them. So the need to give and receive apologies is with us until our very last breath. And when, when done well, the apology is deeply healing. And when an apology is absent, or it's a bad blame-reversing apology, it, it can put a crack in the very foundation of a relationship or even end it. So it's a really important subject. And Stephanie, what, what actually got me to sit down and write the book on a personal note is I received a really awful apology that just, it just stayed with me. And somehow, I've been studying this subject over many years, but getting that really bad apology inspired me to actually sit down and start writing the book. I know from reading the book myself, you did a lot of research and you had been doing a lot of research. And then it sounds like it took, you know, that, that kind of pinnacle moment where it was like, oh, yes, this is, this is going to be important because it really struck home in that moment. Yes. You write about this art of apology and this healing power of authentic apology. Would you define that for us? What is an authentic apology? An authentic apology involves caring about the relationship and accepting responsibility for our part of the problem without a hint of evasion, excuse-making, blaming, bringing up the other person's crime sheet, and being able to do that even when the other person's feelings seem exaggerated or they can't see their own contribution to the problem. And that sounds simple, but we actually muck it up. Everything worth doing actually requires practice. It's true. 
And our automatic set point is that we're going to muck the apology up. And maybe we should talk about that. Yeah, let's do, because I think it's important. It's not just about receiving an apology. It's also that we're very human, and oftentimes when we try to make the apology, we're in the heat of the moment, and and yeah, we, we mess up. We muck it up. Yes, and recognizing the most common ingredients of a failed apology actually really helps us to know how to give a good apology. I know that in your book that you talked about that as well. So let's let's talk about that. What are some ways that we mess up an apology? The most common way is with the word but. I'm so sorry I forgot to call you, but I was swamped with work. Everything fell through the cracks. It doesn't matter if what you say after the but is true. The but makes the apology false. The word but will almost always signify a rationalization, a criticism, an excuse. So rule number one is to get your but out of your (laughs) apology. Yes. And then the other way that we muck up the apology, this is more subtle and actually more insidious, is that we focus on the other person's feelings or reactions rather than apologizing for what we said or did. For example, a bad apology would be, I'm sorry that people were offended by the joke I told at the meeting. Mm -hmm. That is not an apology. An apology would be the joke I told at the meeting was offensive. It was insensitive, out of line. I'm sorry, and it won't happen again. So a sincere apology always begins with the specific words or behaviors that you are sorry for, rather than implying that you are sorry that the other person reacted as they did. And then another way that we misuse the apology is to use it as a quick way to get out of a conversation. Like, I told you I was sorry ten times about Mm. my affair, so, you know, why are you bringing it up again? In other words, we use the apology because it's so painful to keep listening. We don't want to listen. So basically in that scenario, you're saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, get over it. Exactly, exactly. Enough already. I don't want to hear it. And of course, when we're talking about a big betrayal and we try to muzzle the other person, the other person only feels what they're feeling more intensely. So it's not helpful you know, what I hear in my office a lot of times is, you know, a couple comes in and and one of them is saying, well, I'm sorry that you feel that way. Exactly. Then you're talking about the other person's feelings rather than talking about what you said or did or failed to say or did that you're apologizing for. You know, it's so easy to to slip into sort of vague, obfuscating language that obscures what it is we are actually sorry for. And in that scenario, it's, you're not owning 
what what did you contribute or or what was your responsibility in the conflict or the situation it's literally a way that you're just you're in some ways emphasizing that person's overreaction right so there really is an art to this. I mean, this is not something that is just innate in any of us, you know, knowing how to apologize and, and sounds like, you know, we have this oftentimes this kind of automatic response and it's painful. It's painful to sit in our responsibility. It's painful to have these conversations. But one of the things that I had read in your book, you know, it talked about how we all have this need for apologies and repair and that we are hardwired for justice and that we're also really human. So if we're going to be in any kind of relationship, we're going to mess up, make mistakes, and other people are going to be hurt as well. So as you talk about how we ruin apologies, there's also then ways you talk about how we can better do an apology. And I, and I love that you talk about the concept of wholehearted listening. It's kind of your check your ego at the door, drop into your heart style of truly listening. Um, can you talk more about what that concept is about? Listening is not a very sexy subject. And <laughs> we, you know, we're, we're much more invested in um, sharpening our talking skills. You know, we want to get through. And people are not very motivated to practice wholehearted, non-defensive listening. And yet, listening is everything. It's, it's how we listen that determines not only how well we can apologize, but how we listen determines how our relationships go and whether people want to see us at the end of the day. So we strengthen both our personal and work relationships when we really let people know when we show people that we can really listen, that we can reflect on our behavior, that we'll do our best to empathize and set things right. And all of that requires listening. The problem is when we're being confronted, you know, like we were talking about earlier, Stephanie, we automatically listen defensively. Mm. You know, if you really pay attention when you're being confronted, you will automatically listen for the exaggerations, the inaccuracies, the, you know, we'll listen to correct the facts. And what we need to practice doing is listening differently, to really try to listen for the essence of what the person needs us to get, to try to listen for what we can agree with, and to apologize for that piece first. And that is so hard, and yet that is what gives the apology meaning. Because if you think about it, and now we're talking about an apology for something that really matters, if you think about it, it's not the words I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. It's not, I'm sorry that heals the injury. The hurt party wants us more than anything to really get it. They want to know that our empathy and our remorse are genuine. 
they want to know that we're going to carry some of the pain that we have made them feel. And, of course, they want to know that there's not going to be a repeat performance. So the real apology, if we're talking about a serious harm or a serious betrayal, and even if we're not, actually, but the, the real apology is going to say, yes, I get it, I screwed up, I was wrong, your feelings make sense, and I want you to know that I'm going to think about what you've told me. It's not going to slip out of my head. And all of that requires listening. If only our wish to understand the other person were as great as our wish to be understood. Ironically, that's one of your quotes that I wrote down that was so impactful to me. That, that really all apologies would be meaningful and healing if our passion to understand the other person was as great as our passion to be understood. Well, we would have a very different world, wouldn't we? One of the things that really struck me in, in the book and that you spoke about several times, that you wrote about several times, was this part of taking time and saying, I'm going to take time to think about what you've said and come back to you. And how powerful that is to actually give someone that gift of time and to, to communicate to them how important this is, that it's worth me really taking time to think about so I can come back and talk to you about it in a better way where maybe I'm not triggered or I'm not in the moment. I, w I really want to value what it is that you've told me. That is beautifully said and so important because very often when someone is very hurt and they confront us, we may give a good apology and really listen but we don't take the initiative to open the conversation again and say, you know, I want you to know that I'm really thinking about what you told me. And I just want you to know that that is not going to slip out of my brain. And I'm wondering if there's more that you haven't told me or more that you would like to say. If we're talking about a large betrayal or hurt, we always leave it to the hurt party to bring it up. You know, in other words, let, right. let's take something like sexual abuse or an affair. We always leave it to the hurt or betrayed party to open the conversation or reopen the conversation. When if you're the one who's done the harmful thing, the best thing you can do is to take the initiative to reopen the conversation yourself and say, you know, I want you to know that I've been thinking about what you told me and all the pain that you've been carrying. And I want you to know that, that this is not something that I will just forget about, that, that I carry that pain too you know, in terms of what I've done. And it's very counterintuitive to do that because we think, oh, you know, we don't want to bring that up again or, you know, it's not our job to, 
to bring it up. So we leave it to the hurt party, the harm party, the betrayed party, to always be the one to bring it up. It's not their job. It becomes their job because of our silence. So this is a very important point. Absolutely. This this part of if you're the person that betrayed the person, you know, out of, I think, our own guilt, if we're the betrayer, we, we, it's like, okay, we just want it done. We want that conversation exactly. over with, and we exactly. don't want to have to keep dealing with our own pain. So the tendency would be, just like you said, not to bring it up. But in true healing of the relationship and of really um, helping to heal that other person, what you're, what I'm hearing is this part of just continuing to open up that conversation by saying, I'm here to listen as, as many times as you need to talk about it. I haven't forgotten. I haven't forgotten the hurt. And I'm willing to be here to hold that hurt. Exactly. There's a wonderful story that a colleague of mine tells, Janice Abram Spring, who is an expert on affairs. And she tells the story, there was a couple who saw her in therapy, and, you know, they had worked very, very hard on the fact that he had had the affair. The husband had worked very hard on the issue of restoring trust and also being the one to reopen the conversation and ask her how she was doing. And what happened is it might have been a couple of years after you know, they had really worked on this. And they went out for their anniversary. The couple went out for their anniversary to a very good restaurant. And as they, um, you know, decided on what they were going to order, and the, the wait person came over, and she said, um, hello, my name is Abby and I'm here to serve you tonight. Now, Abby was the name of the affair partner Mm. that he had had the affair with. And in that moment, in that moment, the husband had a couple of choices. He could think to himself, well, maybe my wife didn't notice, you know, that her name was Abby, and that was the name of the affair partner, like, really, you know? Right, right. Um, Or he could have thought, I just shouldn't say anything. I don't want to ruin this evening. Let me see if my wife brings it up. And instead of doing that, he did exactly the right thing. He, He reached over, and he took her hand. And he said, I am so sorry. Hmm. I am so sorry that I did this thing and brought this into our relationship. I so wanted this to be our special evening. Is there anything that I can do to help make this better? And she turned to him and said, you've just done it. Mm. And it's a, it's a beautiful example of what we're talking about, Stephanie, where he took the initiative, he took the risk 
to open the conversation himself rather than sitting there hoping that the whole thing was going to go away because the affair happened, you know, two years in the past. So that ability, when we've hurt someone, to reopen the conversation, is an, it's an act of great courage. Thank you for sharing that story. It, it is an act of great courage, and that's, that's a beautiful story just illustrating how that moment led to healing instead of where it could have actually continued to kind of pick the scab off the wound. Exactly, exactly. And so often, and this does not just have to do with apologies, it has to do with all the traumas and hurts of everyday living. So often I work with parents and they, they'll say to me, well, I don't want to bring I don't want to bring this up. You know, I'll wait for my child to to rebring it up or I don't want to mention this because you know, it's not my place. And often when people suffer, we suffer twice. We suffer once because the painful thing happened, the violation happened. And then we suffer again because everyone leaves it to us to open the conversation or to talk about it. So the subjects that we're talking about, Stephanie, really go way beyond the apology. Yes, to even deeper levels of relation and relationship and healing. Right, right. So I want to rewind just a little bit because I, I think it's really important to share as you were talking earlier about this wholehearted listening, and it's such an imperative component to all of this, what are, what are some of the most important steps to this non-defensive listening? The first step is to pay attention to the fact that you are listening defensively because that is your automatic set point. So you start noticing that what you're actually listening for are the errors, the exaggerations. That is a big step when you can notice that. The other thing we need to do is we need, when someone is attacking us, we need to calm our overheated nervous system because no one can, can really open, we can't open up our hearts and really listen when we're feeling tense, we're feeling intense. So we need to take some deep breaths and really try to calm ourselves. And if we can't, I know many times I can't, (laughs) it is very wise to say, you know what you're telling me is very important and I'm just not able to listen now. Let's set up a time like let's make a time maybe on Sunday after coffee and talk about this again when I can really listen because I really want to hear what you're saying. In other words, don't try to listen when you really can't. And sometimes we have to, I see this a lot in marriage where men tell me that they can't listen because they they sort of... um, And they begin to stonewall or shut down because they're not able to uh, tolerate a sort of rat-a-tat-tat style where there are many 
criticisms coming at them at once. So we may need to say, you know, it's very hard for me to listen when you are approaching me in such an intense way, and I really need you to um, bring up one thing at a time and to and to approach me with respect and not like I'm a big screw-up. In terms of listening, though, I would say, you know, in terms of your question, yeah of how do we really engage in wholehearted listening. We need to calm ourselves down, however you do that. We need to pay attention to when we're listening for the errors. We're listening to correct facts. We need to switch into listening for the essence of what the other person is saying. We need to apologize first for whatever it is that we can really get, even if you can only get 5% of what that angry person is trying to tell us. We can apologize for that 5%. And then we can have another conversation. You don't need to accomplish everything in one marathon conversation. (laughs) We may need to have another conversation where we clarify our differences. What is it we don't agree with? The good apology requires both the non-defensive listening and also requires that we define how we see things differently. Because it's not, you know, like we should just be accommodating people that are apologizing for things that indeed we don't think we should be apologizing for. And sometimes it helps to divide that into two conversations. The first one where we really listen, the second one where we define our differences. I have an example in Why Won't You Apologize of a mother who was confronted by her adult daughter in a terribly harsh way where the daughter was accusing the mother of totally neglecting her at the time of a divorce that happened over a decade earlier. And the mother, to her credit, was able to sit on the hot seat and really apologize for the fact that she had indeed been so caught up in her own pain that she had not paid attention to her daughter's pain. And she listened carefully for that peace that she could get and apologize for it. She also had another conversation with the daughter, and this is equally as important, where she opened up a conversation to say how she saw things differently, the peace that she did not agree with, and was not apologizing for. And what she said to her daughter was, in this other conversation, I've been thinking about what you said about my neglecting you at the time of the divorce. I am so sorry about that and wish that I could go back in time and do it differently. There's one piece that you said that I do not agree with. I do not agree that I was responsible for your dad's drinking after the divorce. 
I am responsible for my own behavior. I am not responsible for your dad's behavior. I'm really sorry that he didn't get help with his drinking. That is not my responsibility. I do not see myself as causing his his drinking problem. And then she asked her daughter, she said, what is it like for you that you and I see this so differently? We see this issue with your dad so differently. And that example was very important because we not only need to apologize for what we're responsible for, we need to define how we see things differently as well. Because defining our differences is part of being a solid, mature person. And I think that's such an essential point, because I think sometimes people think if we're going to apologize, then we're really being weak. And, and it's kind of like this rolling over. Exactly. And, and men in particular um, see apologizing for anything as weak. And, you know, there are people at the very top who will never apologize and and see that as very weak. And, of course, what our leadership does trickles down into the very interior of family life. So, yes, men in particular may see apology, well, see apologizing even for things that indeed, that, you know, they've done wrong. They see it as a weakness when, in fact, we strengthen our personal and work relationships one apology at a time. That any kind of mature leadership, whether you're a parent, whether you're a leader in your community or of the nation, that you you strengthen relationships when we show that we can listen, that we can reflect on our behavior, that we can orient toward reality and take responsibility for what we have indeed done wrong that we should be apologizing for. This is what our relationships need. This is what our world needs. This is imperative in the times that we're in, absolutely. What are the differences between men and women's apology styles? The best predictor for being an under-apologizer is being raised male. And the best predictor for being an Mm over-apologizer is being raised female. So it's some folks, for example, let's look at over-apologizing in women. It's been getting a lot of attention. Actually, the comedian Amy Poehler has a great quote. She says, quote, it takes years as a woman to unlearn what you have been taught to be sorry for. So if men sometimes can't get the words, I was wrong, I'm sorry, out of their mouths, Um, Many women apologize to a fault as if they went to Miss Manners apology finishing (laughs) school. So, you know, whatever the reasons, if you are an over-apologizer, it's really good to tone it down. 
And if you've forgotten to return your friend's Tupperware, you don't have to apologize, you know, as if you've run over her kitten. Over-apologizing creates distance. It interrupts the flow of conversation. It will irritate your friends and so forth. It can come across as very inauthentic. Yeah, I mean, it it often comes across as sort of just this nervous twitch. Like, um, I had lunch. I have a friend who tends to over-apologize, and when I go to a restaurant with her, it's like, oh, oh, were you going to sit in this chair? I'm so sorry. Oh, were you looking? I'm sorry. You were looking at that menu. Oh, I'm sorry. You were about to say something. You know, it's very ironic because on the one hand, it's very self-effacing. On the other hand, it really, that kind of over-apologizing brings attention to yourself. So whatever the causes for it, if you are an over-apologizer, it's good to tone it down. And of course, at the workplace, it interferes with your authority. I will add that when it comes to the apologies that really matter, the apologies that mothers need to give to daughters, that fathers need to give to their their sons, etc. Both men and women have a big problem. It's very hard. It is, no, no matter what sex you are. Absolutely. And, and one of the things you write about in, in the book is that, that shame is an important piece in understanding this art of apology and how it affects us. How does our shame affect our ability, whether we're male or female, to give or receive an apology? Shame is a really nasty, mean, mischievous, no good emotion. I have studied shame um, for a very long time. And actually, I've written about the effects of shame in the dance of fear. And if you look at entrenched non-apologizers, they can't apologize because They are standing on a small, rickety platform of self-worth, and they're unable to own up to the hurt they've caused. They're unable to really get it, because to really get the harm they've done threatens to flip them into an identity of worthlessness and shame. So the non-apologizer walks on a tightrope of defensiveness above a huge canyon of low self-esteem, above a huge canyon of shame. And no one can apologize. You know, we can apologize for what we do. You know, we feel we're basically a good person. We stand on a big platform of self-worth, and we've done something wrong. And we stand on a big platform of self-worth, and we look out at the bad thing we've done, And we can apologize for that bad thing because we see it as part of a much larger, complex, ever-changing picture of who we are as a human being. But we can apologize for what we do. We can't apologize for, for who we are. So if apologizing 
is going to throw you into an identity of being a bad mother, of being a narcissist, of being a toxic person. You can't get it because none of us can tolerate that. And, you know, often when we want the apology, you know, let's shift now. You know, we're the one who wants the apology. And we have this misguided notion that the, the, the more we just, you know, blast the other person, we come out with our guns loaded, you know, how could you do this? What kind of person does this? You know, the other person can't hear us. You know, that they can't hear us if we're inviting them to see their identity, you know, as being an abuser, a, a, a perpetrator, a, we're all better and more complex than the worst things we've ever done. So if you want an apology, if you're really wanting the other person to hear you, it will not help them hear you if you hit them with a barrage of criticism and invite them um, into shame because no one can tolerate an identity of shame. No one, not one of us. We need to feel part of the flow of human connection. We need to feel worthy of love and respect, even when we've done the worst things. So part of, why won't you apologize, part of the book is also helping the hurt party, the betrayed party, the harmed party, mm-hmm. to get the apology that they deserve and want. Hi, this is Chris Lanfear. We'll get back to our conversation in a moment, but I wanted to take a second to let you know a little secret. Radio isn't free. We spend a lot of resources producing shows like the one you're listening to right now, and that all costs money. Every little bit helps, so if you like what you're hearing, go to noco.fm, that's N-O-C-O dot F-M, and click on the Donate Now button. Your donation goes directly into producing more shows like the one you're hearing right now. Our staff is made up of volunteers, so we don't have much of a budget. In fact, most of the time, we don't have any budget. But that's where you come in. So if you like what you're hearing, please go to noco.fm and support us. Thank you. So how do we confront perhaps this defensive wrongdoer if we're the hurt or angry person? We don't blast and blame them. It's much more likely that someone will get it or be able to listen if we say less 
And we say it in terms of our own feelings, and we say it in I language, and it can be very difficult to do that. It's very difficult, by the way, when people are angry to say less. It's very difficult to say, you know, Dad, I left that conversation feeling like I was a smaller person, like I had disappointed you. What is your perspective on that? And and leaving the space, you know, rather than, you know, what's wrong with you? How could you say that to me? You know, how could you do what you did to be able to say, you know, I was left with a lot of leftover anxiety about that interaction that we had And I left the conversation with this bad feeling and as if I had disappointed you. Um, Can you tell me more about that? It also does not help to demand an apology. It, It just doesn't help. But it does help to be able to speak briefly to your feelings. I have... um, a great example of that in a TED Talk that I did of a really beautiful example of a woman who was really a young woman. She was right out of high school, and she was really shamed by her teacher. She was shamed because she had been profoundly depressed, and she had made a suicide attempt, and she came back to see him on spring break and she went to visit this teacher who had mentored her, who had believed in her promise, who had treated her with great respect. And instead this teacher said to her, I'm so sorry, Margot. You know, I I didn't see you as the sort of person who would do such a thing. I'm so disappointed when I heard about your suicide attempt. I know that strong gal is in there somewhere, Margot. You know, he totally shamed her. And the first thing that Margot did was to write him this single-space, three-page letter. It included, you know, notes of the literature on depression and self-harm and suicide, and it was a furious letter. And, you know, I was Margot's therapist, and... um, I I knew that that teacher would not spend one nanosecond reading that long tome. And Margot ended up, and it was very brave of her, sending him a handwritten note, not email, you know, a handwritten note on a card, basically saying something like, Dear so-and-so, I came to see you needing your respect and support. I left your office feeling like a smaller person who had disappointed you. Maybe that's what you felt, but it did not help me to hear it. I also need to tell you that I do not believe that I'm a lesser person because of my depression and suicide attempt. Love, Margo. Now that letter is very clear. There are no double messages. There's no criticism or blaming. She did not add 
something like, you need to apologize. There was no telling him what to do. And it was a brilliant letter. And it can take a lot of courage to send a handwritten note, as Margot did in six sentences, you know, rather than a three-page single-space letter, you know, documenting his crime sheet. <laughs> Everyone who gets me as a therapist also gets me as an editor. And I always coach people to say it shorter. Well, and especially it sounds like because that defensiveness that her teacher would have immediately had, like you said, he wouldn't have given audience to a three-page letter. No. People have this belief, you know, this belief that the longer they make their argument and the more, the more points that they make, the more they're definitely going to get through. So, by the way, don't act like a lawyer, even if you are one, <laughs> and take Margot's note as your guide. That was so powerful, those six sentences, where she both said, I left your office feeling like a smaller person who disappointed you. That may be how you see it. It did not help me to hear it. And I need to tell you that I do not see myself as a lesser person because of my depression and suicide attempt. Love, Margot. She also invited connection rather than cut off, which was also very courageous because although the teacher had acted like a total asshole, to use Margot's language, yes. she had a long history with him, a long and very important history. And interestingly, the teacher did, after getting that card, he did call her, and he did apologize. Mm. And he did explain to her that part of the reason he had behaved like such a jerk is that he had become very anxious because he had had an earlier student some years back who had, in fact, taken her life mm. in college. And he didn't use that as an excuse. It was an explanation, but he, you know, he said there is no excuse. The point is not that her teacher apologized. That was wonderful. But we have no control. When we have no control over how the other person responds when we try to reach them. We only have control over what we say or do. And what Margot did in writing that card was she increased her own platform of self-worth. She increased her own level of dignity and maturity and integrity by writing a letter, a brief letter like that. Well, it was so powerful because she was clearly stating too, I am more than a diagnosis. I exactly. am more than what my actions were. What, what a powerful right. story. Very powerful. And she was saying, I am more than the diagnosis and the depression. And she was also saying, I do not accept that severe depression and suicide is a sign that I am a weak or a lesser person. So in, these, in this very brief card, six sentences, where there was no criticism, no blame, no telling him what to do, 
um, it was really so powerful and profound and clear. So, yeah, Yeah. I have tremendous respect for her ability to do that. Well, and I think, too, the, the important piece in speaking about doing that short, very powerful apology is, you know, she really owned her own experience. And if we're apologizing, if it's a huge... Uh, or if we're we're wanting to communicate our feelings to a wrongdoer, if we can talk about what our experience is instead of blaming, like you said, and just bombarding that other person with criticism, then it's going to be a much more powerful experience for us. And the person may be open to hearing it and, and be much less defensive, which brings me kind of to this other point of, you know, we we talk about one of the things that you talk about in Why Won't You Apologize is these, this importance of when we're talking with someone, there, there are some myths around forgiveness and that somehow we need to forgive them for the wrongdoing or forgive someone who's a non-apologetic offender. Can you say more about that? The most difficult chapter that I wrote for Why Won't You Apologize, and this chapter took me as long as the rest of the book, Mm. was a chapter called You Need to Forgive and Other Lies That Hurt You. I want readers and listeners to understand that you do not need to forgive a wrongdoer who has never listened to your feelings, who has never cared about your feelings, who has never owned up, who won't orient toward reality, you do not need to forgive them. That is a cultural myth. You do need to let go of those corrosive aspects of anger and bitterness that wake you up at three in the morning, Mm. you know, three in the morning is the time our mischievous, anxious brain wakes us up so we can ruminate about what that terrible person did to us. And, you know, we need to be able to let go of those negative emotions that are hurting us, not the other person. They may be having a great time at the beach. And there are many ways to do this to let go of the corrosive aspects of anger that keep you stuck without forgiving a non-repentant wrongdoer. And there are just so many myths uh, about forgiveness that are wrong. Like there's the myth that you are a less loving and less whole person if there are certain things that you do not forgive. That's not true. Maybe you're even a stronger or more courageous person if you have some leftover anger from a violation. We can do a lot of harm by pushing forgiveness. For example, in my consulting room, in my therapy office, I will often hear a mother say to her adult daughter, you really need to forgive your dad so that you can move on. What happened happened a long time ago. It is what it is. Your dad was abused himself. You know, you just need to forgive and move forward. And when we ask another person 
to forgive a non-repentant wrongdoer, we can hurt them all over again. We can leave them feeling isolated and disoriented all over again. It's not our job, by the way, it's not my job as a therapist, it's not the job of your priest or rabbi or teacher or whoever to tell you that you should forgive a person who has harmed you and who has never earned your forgiveness. That is not anyone else's job to tell you that. So, you know, that that chapter was very, very difficult to write um, because, you know, I didn't want to come across like a great big meanie. And um, it, it's very complex, the subject of forgiveness. And I think that is a really important chapter in the book. Absolutely. You know, this, the, the piece too about, you know, when we don't receive an apology from our wrongdoer, not knowing what to do to let go of our anger, but also knowing that, I mean, I loved you spoke about this idea that forgiveness shouldn't be expected to be at 100%. Yes, that's one of the myths about forgiveness. We have this myth that forgiveness is an all or nothing thing, like being pregnant. Either you embrace the offender or you exile the offender. Either you forgive him or you don't. The truth is you can forgive the other person 95% or 2% or anywhere in between. Like the, the woman whose husband had an affair said to him in my consulting room, and this is after, you know, he had really done a lot of work, a lot of work earning back her trust, and their marriage really had moved forward, and he asked her if she totally forgave him, and she said to him, I forgive you 95%. And he said, what do you mean? And she said, I forgive you for having the affair. I will never forgive you for sleeping with her in our bed when I was out of town with my dying mother. I mm. will not forgive you for that. So that was the 5% that she was not going to forgive him for. And that was okay. So that, again, is a myth that forgiveness is an all or nothing thing. It's not. Well, and the part you said, too, that is important is that you don't have to forgive 100% to get over negative emotions. Right, right. Can you tell me more about that? There are many ways that we let go of negative emotions. We're wired for reactivity. We all have very reactive brains. It's very hard to calm down and free ourselves from the kind of obsessive anger that doesn't lead to problem solving. It doesn't lead to anything. It just serves to make us miserable. And many people come into therapy wanting help to be able to find peace and to calm down. And of course, there are so many different paths to healing. And 
again, the point in our brief time together that I want to make is that you do not need to forgive a person who has hurt you and has never aimed to repair it or even listen. You don't need to forgive them in order to free yourself from from that pain of negative emotions. There are many, many paths to calming down our overheated nervous system and grabbing a bit more peace and calm in this difficult world. Because many people who have hurt you will never apologize. They will never get it. Right. As we talked about, it requires having a solid platform of self-worth in order to apologize. And it also requires that we pay attention to how we're approaching them, as we talked about before. Well, and from also from your book, you, know, you talk about the many things that we can do when someone, the wrongdoer, will never apologize. And it really is some strategies in growing our own self-worth. It sounded, you know, it was things you were talking about with, you know, growing and healing within ourselves, whether it's meditation, whether it's a spiritual practice. Well, there are probably 15,000 books out there about how to calm down and find inner peace. Um, There are so many ways, whether it's meditation or medication or, you know, gardening or music or, or being useful to other people, which is the greatest antidote of despair. Mm. So there are more books out there on how you can try to calm down and find a little peace than you would ever have time to read, even in several lifetimes. But if someone else tells you, well, you just have to forgive or you'll never find peace, you can ignore them. That, that's an important part. That's an absolutely important part. So the book is Why Won't You Apologize? Healing Big Betrayals and Everyday Hurts. Harriet, thank you so much for sharing this time with me and with us. You are very welcome, Stephanie. My pleasure. In my interview with Harriet Lerner, I learned so much about the art of apology, what to say, and more importantly, what not to say. There are certain things that don't make an apology an apology. Number one is when we don't own what our responsibility in the situation was and how we may have truly hurt the other person's feelings. There's really a fine attunement that takes place in this art of apology. It's when we understand the other person's perspective, we move out of our head and our ego and into our heart, and we really try to understand how our words or actions may have impacted another. Also, if we're the person that has been wronged, the act of forgiveness is something I thought was really fascinating that when we're accepting someone's apology, we can accept them, but it doesn't have to be a full pardon forgiveness. That we can actually say, 
I forgive you and we can let go of that energy and we can truly allow ourselves to heal from whatever the situation was. But it also doesn't mean that we have to do 100% forgiveness in order for this healing to become an actuality. It's important that when we're with people that we care about in relationship, in business relationships, truly in any capacity of relationships, we need to learn how we can start to check our egos at the door and to really understand in relationship, we're gonna have conflict, no matter what that relationship is. And one of the greatest ways to resolve that conflict is to be able to sit down with each other, truly listen to gain understanding with the goal being connection and understanding, instead of you have to accept what I think is right, or I have to accept what you think is right, that really we can come together with this art of apology, owning what each of us have, has contributed to the conflict. And then we're able to truly move beyond it. We're able to move beyond the hurt to reconciliation and true healing in each other's lives. Remember, The Spark is your show too. If you have questions, feedback on the show, or if you're going through something and need a little help, we'd love to hear from you. Continue the conversation with us at our website, thesparkpod.com, and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. New episodes of The Spark air Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Mountain, and podcast episodes are released the same day. To make sure you don't miss an episode, Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional and should not be considered medical advice. If you're having a mental or physical health crisis, please seek treatment immediately. The Spark is produced by NOCO Media Limited, which is solely responsible for its content. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Spark, igniting your best life. I'm Stephanie James. My apology, but love is blind, and I was too blind to see. was blind and